The Bali bombings killed over 200 people, of which uh, 88 were from Australia. The attacks brought Indonesia and Australia closer together as police worked together to, well, to both deal with the, the dead and injured, but also to identify those responsible. Now, how did this terrible day change Indonesia? in how it sees itself and what has been the ongoing influence on the changing place of Islam in their democracy. Now, to discuss the, the legacy of the bombings in, on Indonesia, I am pleased to welcome Professor Greg Feely to the program. Greg is an emeritus professor at the Coral Bell School of Asia-Pacific Affairs at the ANU. Uh, welcome back, Greg. I have to ask you this. I used to always ask uh, named chairs, who or is, was, or was Coral Bell? That's a very good question, Philip. Uh, Coral Bell was one of the early female um, international relations and security studies experts in Australia. She originally had a career in the Department of Foreign Affairs, but was one of those people who had to uh, resign when she married, if I'm remembering the story correctly. So she went on to have a long and illustrious academic career and naming a school of most schools of international studies and Asian studies in Australia are named after men. And uh, I think the, the Bell School is very proud that it's named after one of the pioneering female scholars in the field. Thanks for that. Now, how did the Bali bombings change Indonesia? It changed, um, it changed Indonesia in a great many ways. Uh, of course, when the bombing happened, Indonesia was perhaps even more shocked than many other countries in the world. Uh, you know, Australia also you know, had a terrible toll, a terrible loss of life in, in that attack. But I think Indonesians, they knew that there were radical groups in their midst. There had been uh, sporadic bombings in the previous few years, but there'd been nothing on this scale. These were the kinds of terrorist attacks that Indonesians had read about as happening in other countries, and I don't think too many people imagined that they would happen in Indonesia. Initially, there was a lot of scepticism towards uh, the issue of who'd undertaken the bombings, and majority opinion in the Muslim community was this was probably a foreign intelligence agency. The CIA, Mossad, MI6 were often mentioned as potential perpetrators, and as the as the real perpetrators were brought to um, uh, to court and made to give evidence in open court and the Indonesian public could see them admitting to their crimes, explaining how they'd put the bombs together, talking about their motivation, it really helped to convince the Indonesian public that Republic, the uh, Indonesian public that um, that terrorism really was a homegrown problem, that these are people within their own bits. Okay, well, we'll were, come, were back, we'll that come back to that shortly. But I, do, I also understand from you that the bombing strengthened the role of police, which had only recently separated from the military. 
That's true. For most of the Suharto authoritarian period, the New Order period of government from the late 1960s through to the late 1990s, the police were, in a way, the most junior of the four services that were in the Indonesian armed forces. And so the separation of the police was really an important um, cornerstone of the reform process that was undertaken. And the police were given primary responsibility for domestic security. It is, had been a police force that didn't have a very high professional reputation, but one of the things that has really helped to rehabilitate its image, both domestically and globally, was the success of its counterterrorism fights. Basically, since the Bali bombing went off in October 2002, right up until the present, the counterterrorism detachment, special detachment 88, has continued to have extraordinary success in thwarting terrorist operations. Of course, one of the other things that happened is there was a, a strong connection between, well, the recently separated uh, Indonesian police and the Australian Federal Police. Yes, and that is one direct consequence of the Bali bombing. One of the early uh, um, uh, policies that the Indonesian government agreed to, the then Megawati government, was that the Indonesian police and intelligence services were encouraged to ha to openly cooperate with foreign police forces and other foreign security agencies who might be able to provide them with technical skills, valuable intelligence, anything that could help to uh, to put the dragnet over uh, not only the people who'd undertaken the Bali bombings, but also broader terrorist movements in Indonesia. And that, that was very successful. Now, Greg, when it became painfully clear to Indonesians that the conspiracy theories about uh, Mossad and other players were false, how were the Bali bombers perceived? Were they seen as uh, devout Muslims who'd gone awry? Increasingly, the majority of Indonesians viewed them as, as criminals and as people who had uh, an interpretation of Islam that was entirely alien to the mainstream. And so there was not a great deal of sympathy when, for example, three of the key figures in the bombing operation were executed. Uh, there was very little outpouring of grief. There was among hardline Islamist groups and there were very emotional funerals for them in in their home cities but that was very much a fringe response a great many Indonesians felt that they had got what was coming to them now what's the current situation with the Islamic extremists I know that uh, there were Indonesians that went to Syria there were a great many Indonesians went to Syria and there were some very interesting interesting dynamics in that. It was a very diverse group of people that went to Syria. We, and this was different. I think a point of comparison would be the Mujahideen struggle in northern Pakistan, and particularly Afghanistan, in the 1980s. And in that case, it was all men, usually young men, who went to those camps from Indonesia and other Southeast Asian nations. But to Syria, we got entire families going and quite often 
the available evidence suggests that the women members of the family were the ones who were most zealous about pursuing jihad within the Islamic State. So uh, it's one of the reasons that we, we still have quite a lot of Indonesians in camps uh, awaiting repatriation to Indonesia. So there were some quite peculiar dynamics to that. Are they, will they be returned? Uh, well, quite a lot have been returned. It depends where they are. Those who were certainly uh, held in Turkey, a great many people were apprehended by Turkish authorities and so they couldn't get into Syria to, uh, and Iraq to join the um, ISIS forces. Those who are now in camps in, in Syria, for example, yes, there is a process of re repatriating them and Indonesia has had some success in rehabilitating those those people. It's, it hasn't really been a, an ideal operation, but nonetheless, a great many people have been are on the way to being reintegrated into Indonesian society. Talking to Greg Feely, Greg, uh, with Indonesia, it's still ISIS that's the most uh, influential. It is. Uh, there's actually a the main cleavage that one could describe in the jihadist community is between those that are still loyal to Al Qaeda and that. The main group there is Jemaah Islamiyah, the group that undertook the Bali bombings 20 years ago. But on the other side, on the pro-ISIS side, uh, we have a number of groups, but the main one is one called JAD, and that was responsible for the, the biggest of the most recent terrorist attacks, one in 2018 in Surabaya and another in 2016 in central Jakarta. That group, that JAD group, continues to attempt to bring off new terrorist attacks, but they are continually being defeated in that by the police. The police have superior intelligence and they've, they've proven very effective at preventing those uh, operations from going ahead. So there's no lack of intention, but what is lacking is skills, people who can put together big bombs and who can put together highly coordinated operations are, are, are definitely in short supply, but also the police are just very effective at cracking open those groups. And I see that more than 1,200 arrests have been made in, the, well, the last four years. It's Yes, that's an extraordinary number. And those arrests are both on the J.I. side, the Gemma Islamia side. And, and Gemma Islamia, I should add, has not been actively engaged in terrorism really as an organisation really since the early 2000s. So... Uh, they're still recruiting and training people, but they have a longer-term objective of establishing an Islamic State. Nonetheless, the Indonesian police have been very rigorous in particularly pursuing financial um, uh, uh, lines and um, tracing how money is entering the country, what it's being used for, and that is how they are managing to um, arrest very senior um, people in J.I., the same applies to ISIS as well, that, again, it's one of the most successful records, uh, certainly of any police force in the region, and I think one of the most successful records of any police force in the world. And it has all been done largely according to law. When people are arrested, they are brought before open proceedings in courts of law. They're tried in a very uh, in, given due process, and so... Um, most of those people who have been detained are successfully convicted and are jailed and quite often jailed for quite long periods of time. And we note that there's been some success in de-radicalising extremists in prisons. 
Yes, well, there have been, you know, well over a thousand uh, serious terrorists who have been released uh, over the last five, six years from from Indonesian jails. So one of the challenges for the counterterrorism police is to keep tabs on all of these people. The majority of them seem to have been rehabilitated or have decided to be de-radicalised or to be disengaged is perhaps the best word to use for it. They may not have completely renounced jihadist principles, but they have decided that for the moment they will not be involved. Um, there are various motivations that can be behind that. Sometimes the police and and other counterterrorism authorities uh, set them up in businesses. Sometimes flaming pressure can turn out to be a uh, a decisive factor. Sometimes also jihadist prisoners are integrated into the broader prison population. They get to meet non-Muslims, for example, and some of the stereotypes, the very negative stereotypes they have of people who are not Muslims uh, disappear when they get to know people and become friendly with them. So there are quite a lot of reasons why people may decide to desist from terrorism. Let, let's look at Jokowi's balancing act because he's got to deal with those who wish to make Islam more central to government. Uh, he does have to deal with that. It's a, it's a somewhat complex picture. If we look at the election results of the last five elections, if we're particularly the last four elections, the last 20 years, the four Islamic parties have got roughly the same amount of vote. It's about 30% of the vote. And this is in a country that is almost 90% Muslim. So only about a third of the Muslim population is voting for overtly Islamic parties. There are a great many more devout Muslims who are actually voting for parties that um, are not primarily Islamic parties. They're voting for parties on the basis of their programs because they think those parties will run the country well, uh, will will help to um, uh, bring about pro greater prosperity in the country. So they have a broader set of agendas, even though in their personal lives they're, they're pietistic and very often increasingly conservative. So we need to make this distinction. Indonesian society is Islamizing and the values are becoming increasingly conservative, but it's not necessarily flowing through into the political sphere. Um, so that's the situation that Jokowi is um, responding to. To the more hardline Islamist groups, to the groups that are more trenchant in their opposition to him, uh, he does actually crack down quite severely on them and quite a few Islamist leaders have been jailed, quite often on fairly minor charges, and a lot of other Islamist leaders have gone quiet under the threat of prosecution. So it's, he's been quite effective at... Um, at intimidating um, the the more right-wing elements in the Islamist community. Now, Jokowi can only uh, run for two terms and under the, under the Constitution, so uh, there are elections ahead. What do you foresee happening? Who do you see as the major players? So, there, so the election will be held in 2024, the next presidential election. At the moment, um, Indonesia's presidential rules make it different from, difficult for there to be um, a large number of candidates or pairs of candidates, but it's very likely uh, for the last two presidential elections, we've only had two pairs of candidates, and they were the same two uh, in both occasions, which was 
Jokowi is one pre- leading one presidential team and Prabowo Subianto leading the other. And Prabowo Subianto, after the last election, decided to um, stop, re- remove himself from opposition to become part of the government. So he's now the defence minister. He's now pursuing a new strategy in order to try for a third time to get elected as president. So he's one of the front runners. As you mentioned, Jokowi can no longer run. He's reached his constitutional limit. The other two strong candidates, Philip, are both governors, or one of them a recently ex-governor, and that is Anis Baswedan in Jakarta. And the third candidate, the one who is currently on top of many of the polls, is the governor of central Java, Ganja Pranowo. Um, so these three people are vying against each other. Just a few days ago, we had um, one of the important coalition parties um, decided to throw its nomination or to nominate Anis Baswedan, this former Jakarta governor. And so he's off and running. Um, Prabowo's party has already made clear that they will be nominating him. So uh, this is already proving a distraction um, in in elite politics in Indonesia. There's a lot to, that, that can change over the next few years, but I think the broad outline of what we will have until 2024 is already pretty apparent. It's probably going to be these three candidates, Prabowo, Anis Baswedan and Ganjar Pranowo. It's interesting, isn't it, that things have gone up and down over the years, relationships between Indonesia and Australia. But uh, it has led, the Bali bombings has led to closer collaboration, not only on police matters, but also militarily. Greg, thanks for your time. I've been talking to Professor Greg Feely, Emeritus Professor in the well-named Coral Bell School of Asia-Pacific Affairs at the ANU. G'day, potties. As you know, we love a philosophical discussion here at Early Nell, but for a different take on the big ethical issues in modern life, try the minefield with Waleed Ali and Scott Stevens. They may even mention Hannah Arendt. Find it on the ABC Listen app or wherever you get your podcasts.